So, <coughs> I want to talk a bit about love and emptiness. Um, and pick up on what we introduced today in terms of practice. Uh, but first, I think just uh, a very brief sort of review of, of, of uh, the show so far, sort of thing. And at this point, um, at this point, I don't think I, I need to sort of sell uh, meta anymore to anyone. At least I hope not. Um, but what what are we doing here? We're cultivating. Um, we're cultivating metta and compassion, and uh, we can see, we can feel uh, here on the retreat and in our lives the blessings that come that come from that, the gifts of doing that for ourselves, for our own lives, for our own being, and in the world for others. So one way of looking at what's going on, it's a very it's a very helpful way, a very real way of looking at what's going on, is that we're reconditioning the mind and the heart. That's not a very, uh, I don't know, appealing word, maybe, reconditioning, but uh, we're transforming, we're cultivating qualities of the mind and the heart. We are planting seeds of intention, of love and compassion, and they bear fruit in their time. They bear fruit. In transforming the heart, we're transforming our intentions in life. Transforming our intentions in life. And so that gradually, slowly, in a very non-linear way, over time, the way we act in the world, the choices that we make, what we put out into the world, is transformed. It's reconditioned. The way we speak, the words we use, what we say, what we don't say, is transformed. And our thoughts and our intentions in life are transformed. And that's um, that's a very powerful thing, not to be underestimated. So that's one, one very uh, important part of what's going on. Another part, and in, in the sort of uh, big picture of our lives and our practice, what we're also doing is, uh, through the matter, through the compassion, creating a kind of ideal inner climate for growth. So I know for myself there have been periods of time when I've been really trying very hard to grow, to understand myself, to understand life, but there wasn't that climate of uh, love for oneself. There wasn't a lot of climate of metta. And it was just like banging my head against the wall, really. Uh, the metta, the compassion, are ideal, uh, the ideal soil. Third thing, when uh, the Buddha, in, in, in his way of teaching, he, he actually didn't teach too much about technique and meditation technique and that sort of, maybe he did, but it hasn't really been recorded. But what he did, one thing that he emph oh, emphasized over and over and over again was a sort of approach to practice which uh, was twofold. One part is a kind of wholesome nourishment. So nourishing the heart, nourishing the mind, the consciousness, the being, in the most wholesome way possible. And that's one half of the practice, and the other half is investigation, insight, looking into life, looking deeply and learning. And these two 
wholesome nourishment and investigation insight uh, support each other and they feed each other and as, a, as an overall principle of what practice is about that's a, that's a very good working model so again through the method through the compassion where uh, finding ways in our lives and in meditation of really uh, nourishing ourselves very deeply in a very wholesome way Uh, what the Buddha would call wholesome abiding or skillful abiding to abide in metta, to abide in compassion and again, it's, it's just important to mention uh, I've probably already said it but none of this is really about self-improvement about me wanting to be a better person because I'm not good enough yet It's not. that's not where it's coming from uh, we are re-cultivating qualities of mind and heart and one can be fully committed to that engagement fully committed to that transformation of the qualities of heart fully committed to that but there's no self in it there's no there's no measurement or comparing or I should be better than I am it's just it's gone it's just not there as a as a potent force and certainly not as a potent force for suffering but the, but the commitment to the cultivation is still there So there's this, whatever we want to call it, transformation, reconditioning, there's the climate for growth, there's the wholesome nourishment to balance with the insight. Uh, some time ago, I think, it, I think it was about a year ago, I, I was teaching a one-day retreat, and I, I was teaching on compassion. And in the question and answer period, a, a man asked a question, well, okay, that's all very nice, but aren't you just reconditioning the mind? Aren't you just reconditioning? How... How will, how will you penetrate through to the unconditioned if all you're doing is, is, is recreating the conditions? So I think he was coming from an earnest place, and it's, you know, it's a good question. And so the unconditioned you know, being another word for the goal of, of, of practice, of Nibbana, of liberation. And I uh, can't remember exactly what I said to him, but we are, at one level, as I said, reconditioning the mind. There's nothing wrong with that. The mind is conditions. The mind is uh, has these habits and grooves, and it can have a groove of irritability, a groove of judgment, a groove of self-criticism. And they're really deep, and they've been deepened over decades. And one thing that we're doing is reconditioning the mind. And there's every validity in that if we're interested in a life that's more open, more peaceful, more happy. But then the, the Buddha also talks about the conditioning that leads to the end of conditions. And this is quite important. It's like some cultivations and conditions actually do not just lead to more conditions. They lead to what the Buddha would call unbinding, letting go of conditions. So metta, compassion, samadhi are three such, uh, three such cultivations three such conditionings of the mind that actually move over time and, and, and slowly toward the unconditioned. So, I think I've already said this, but we can feel like we're here doing this practice and we're sort of grinding away at the, the phrases and the metta and we're building uh, loving-kindness and we're building compassion. It's this fragile sort of structure that we're hoping to hold in place. But sometimes a different sense of it is 
is uh, visible, which is that we're actually getting out of the way. We're doing less and less, and in that doing less and less, we are building less and less, building less and less barriers, and there's the love there, there's the compassion. And in a way, this process just goes deeper and deeper until uh, what we would call the unconditioned becomes uh, visible. That's the word. And then, as we've also talked over, over the over time, uh, through through the dedicated practice to love and compassion, there there is at times possible a sense of the separate self, kind of. Um, dissolving a little bit, to some extent, just the boundaries, the the barriers, the walls that we usually feel in place begin to just dissolve a little bit, and comes to some degree into the practice uh, for a short period of time or a longer period, whatever, a sense of oneness, a sense of oneness, that this sense of me and you, self and other, self and the world that we so take for granted. It's just dissolved a little bit, and we have a different sense of life, a different uh, perception of, of of the reality of things, and that can come and, and it will go, and it's a perception that can arise and fade. Where through the practice, the walls of the self can begin to soften. In a way, uh, we could say self and ego and, and, and all that is built by um, a kind of problematic self-view, a view of struggling with oneself, in, in a way. And to cultivate love and compassion is actually easing the view of self. And in that, there, there is an easing of the sense of separation. So there's oneness, and also, as we've touched on over the, over the weeks, uh, the possibilities of getting uh, a sense or glimpses of, of this anatta, this emptiness of self, uh, through, through the practice, just through the practice of love and compassion. Okay, so that's a, a sort of brief bus tour of, of like I said, the show so far. Uh, This morning, um, this morning we, we did we began something different. So everything so far, the first two weeks, has been loving kindness and compassion towards beings, which is of course how we uh, tend to conceive of it: loving kindness towards self, uh, loving kindness towards others and all beings, and extending uh, the meta in that very uh, boundless and universal way. And I remember um, when I was uh, living in America, and, and there was an urban center there, and every, I think it was twice a year they would they would publish uh, their brochure program, and uh, it would have the list of retreats and all, all that stuff in it. And for about five years or something, every every time it came, every edition that came out had on on the front of it this nice picture of a Buddha statue smiling or something. And, and this quote uh, from the Lotus Sutra, which is one of the um, uh, very uh, well-known and well-loved Mahayana Sutras. And this quote said, See all things with the eyes of compassion. Or, See all things through the eyes of compassion. 
And so for five years I saw that on the front and said, oh, very nice, okay. And went, <laughs> and, went and saw who, who are the teachers that come in, what retreats can I do, etc. And at some point it dawned on me, well, actually it doesn't say see all beings with compassion, it says see all things with compassion, which is a different thing. So we begin to wonder, what does that mean? Does it mean regard the alarm clock with compassion? What does it mean? Uh, there's another um, Mahayana Sutra called the Aksayamati Sutta Sutra. And that has a very odd, another very odd sentence in it, which I'll read to you. It says, in the Aksayamati Sutra, it is said, At the beginning of the spiritual life, love is directed towards beings. With those who are further advanced on the path, love is based on dharmas. And for those who have seen the unconditioned, for those who have seen into emptiness, love is not based on anything at all. So we might hear this and just think, well, what's that talking about? So, f first thing is this word dharmas. Uh, dharmas is one of these words that can have uh, a lot of different meanings. I think what it means here is uh, what we were doing this morning. Experiences, uh, objects of awareness, things, stuff that is arising for us, whatever it is. A moment of some, some object of awareness is a dharma. And again, this, this is quite difficult to understand. We think, what does it mean? What does it mean? So, uh, in a way, we began this this morning, directing the metta, directing the compassion towards experience, towards objects of experience, uh, rather than beings. And just to, just to review, so we did the guided meditation this morning, but just to review, can whatever way of working with that is helpful to you is fine. So it could be something's happening in the body or the heart or the mind or whatever, and there's a sense of um, bathing it, bathing it in love and compassion, directing the, the flow, or uh, the current of love and compassion towards that. Uh, Maybe more helpful to, to uh, kind of feel or envisage a kind of holding of the experience of the object in, in metta and love compassion. should also say at this point, um, in some, uh, in a lot of the Mahayana teachings, uh, they dispense uh, at one level with the words love and compassion. It just they just use one word, compassion, to mean uh, metta and compassion. So this morning in the guided meditation I was actually going back and forth between using those words, and just to not to confuse anyone. And you can use the phrases if that's helpful, you know. Uh, again, we can go into this uh, sense of consciousness, just awareness, the space of awareness just being a very open door, and there's complete welcoming, complete acceptance. So what's being emphasized here is the love the acceptance, absolute radical acceptance, not as in a usual kind of vipassana practice or awareness practice, the precision, the clarity. What exactly is going on? Can I see it moment to moment to moment? 
so if we talk about mindfulness practice, both those emphases are there. There's the emphasis on precision and acceptance. Oftentimes, it's the precision that we tend to emphasize. So there's a reversal of that here. I'm not so interested in the precision, but we're really interested in the, in the flow of kindness, in the holding, in the acceptance, in the welcoming. So really emphasizing a, a, a complete, a, as complete as possible, genuine welcoming of, of the experience, of the moment's experience of the object in consciousness. Uh, for its arising, for its staying, for its passing. And we can, as I say, we can direct the metta, the compassion, towards uh, the object, or in a way you can kind of feel like you're relaxing back into a space, a space of metta, a space of compassion, a space that's imbued with love, and without forcing uh, the uh, objects of consciousness, whatever arises is arising in that space. Uh, so sometimes in this practice it will feel like, well, I can't feel any love, there's just a sense of resistance or whatever. But uh, to remember, there can be a sense that there's nowhere outside of uh, acceptance. There's nowhere outside of love. So if we feel resistance, if we feel non-acceptance, if we feel judging, if we feel numb, whatever it is, the love, the space of love, can just be bigger, bigger than that, and see that too, and embrace that too, and bathe that too in the kindness, in the complete welcoming. And uh, this welcoming has to be, this total welcoming has to be as, as genuine as possible. So, uh, as, as Ramdas says, um, if you're trying to accept something in order that it goes away, uh, it, has, uh, it has a way of knowing. <laughs> it knows, he says. So. Uh, just to check that out, and then, but if there is resistance, that too can take a step back, and that too is included. So first, if you're just hearing this, it might sound a little odd, but hopefully today you've had a little bit of a sense of this practice. It can be also we're opening up to the flow of experience inside, and we're just seeing experience coming and going, coming and going. In a way, the very fleeting nature of experience, uh, in a way it deserves our compassion. Experience is, is almost nothing. It's not, it, it, uh, it's poor, it's impoverished in a way, and it, it needs our compassion. You could see it that way. So, a question, a, a question about this practice, uh, maybe I can even ask you now, what happens what happens uh, to feelings when, when they're there and we, and we uh, really bathe them or hold them in love? What happens to mental states? What happens to emotions, to body sensations, to our perceptions of things? So, it, this really is a practice, uh, it's very much a practice as much as mindfulness is a practice. But you may notice, and you may have noticed today, I don't know, you may have noticed today, that there's a way that things can kind of soften. There's an experience, there's a body sensation or an emotion, and it just begins to soften 
its edges may uh, begin to blur, begin to dissolve a little bit, um, loses its definition, may even begin to fade somewhat. Did anyone notice anything like that at all today? So some some people could. <laughs> um, <laughs> otherwise, we'd be straight back into guarding the treasure. <laughs> uh, okay. What's going on here? What is going on here? This is very curious. This is a very curious phenomenon. And we could uh, we could say, well, what what's this got to do with? I thought you know, Buddhist practice and mindfulness and vipassana, I thought all that was about being with things as they are and being in the moment and uh, uh, being with what is and all that. And here I am doing this practice and everything's kind of fading or, or dissolving or losing its definition. That can't be right. So again, to go back to something I said before, what practice is about is actually not about being with what is. It's not about being with things as they are or being in the present. It's not what it's about. It's about, or what the Buddha keeps emphasizing, this balance <coughs> of wholesome nourishment, feeding what's beautiful, wholesome abiding, and investigation. The investigation, investigating into what brings freedom, which is, which may at times take the form of, I'm just being with what is, what seems uh, there in the moment. That's one one avenue, but that that's can never be the um, the main point of practice. The main point of practice is uh, is moving towards freedom, which is actually something different. How we move to that freedom, whether it's through mindfulness or vipassana or you know, samadhi or metta, it, it's actually completely irrelevant and it, it doesn't matter at all. Different approaches, different times. Some people uh, lean towards one or the other, but um, maybe one could say that knowing uh, all approaches actually gives a very fuller understanding, I don't know. But certainly different approaches at different times. So with mindfulness practice uh, that we're, I think, more familiar with, um, vipassana and insight meditation. There's there's an assumption there that actually teachers are to blame for, uh, which is that mindfulness is neutral. There's something called mindfulness. There's objects of in the world, sights and sounds, and smells and tastes and touches and thoughts and uh, emotions and all that all that stuff. And then there's something called mindfulness, which is there and it sees it as it is. It sees things as they are in a way that's very neutral, very um, not involved, not active, not influencing. But is that really true? Is that really true? Is there really such a thing? So to think about outside our practice, we, uh, we can see how much uh, the mind state that we have at any time influences our perception. So we we, we see, uh, you know, we have this phrase "seeing red" when we're really angry, it's completely consumed in rage. And we say "seeing red," it's actually uh, the la very language is pointing to this insight uh, we, uh, that our whole perception is coloured through the anger. 
or as I'm as I'm uh, uh, sure uh, you've noticed at least a little bit at times on this retreat, sometimes there's just the feeling of matter there. And then what kind of world do we live in? What kind of world do we inhabit? It's uh, sometimes it's so strong. It's it's a heaven realm. It's so, it's so much change the perception. So anger colors the perception. Meta colors the perception. Sometimes when we're angry with someone else, we immediately rush to think, I, I need to give meta to this person to sort of remedy the anger. Sometimes it's very interesting to actually give meta to ourselves when we're angry with someone else. After all, we're probably feeling hurt, so we might need it. But it's quite interesting then, because when the meta begins to ourself begins to kick in, we can actually notice there may be a change of perception of the person, of the situation. Why? Because the mind is then coloured with metta. So anger colours it, metta colours it, certainly romantic love colours it. Mind always has some, some mind state. So with mindfulness, there's always some degree of some something on the range from uh, complete, unconditioned uh, bliss of loving kindness to uh, rage. S- the mind will be somewhere along that spectrum. It has to be. Even if it's very subtle, the mindfulness is always coloured by something on that spectrum, some degree of uh, pushing an object away or pulling it towards us or having a meta relationship with it or whatever. So there's a spectrum and the mind is always somewhere on that spectrum. Which amount of love reveals the real object, reveals the way it really is? Who's going to say? <laughs> There's always some degree there. Which amount reveals the real object? And we're noticing in the practice, well, the when there's a lot of metta there, the object changes. It changes. It changes its form, its impression. What's the real object? What's this real world that we're referring to? What's this real moment, this real things as they are, this real what is? What is? Is what is what is? That's a question I want to ask. <laughs> is what is what is. <laughs> so we say, all right, all right, maybe not mindfulness. What about that other word, equanimity? I've heard about that one. That must be that must be the thing that's right there in the middle at the perfect point. It even sounds like it, equa, equa something. Uh, but again, a deep practice of equanimity. Notice the same thing the perception of the object begins to change. It changes with the degree of equanimity. And there's a similar kind of fading with equanimity. So love and equanimity uh, tend to... uh, uh, tend to... uh, things make less impression on consciousness when there's a lot of love or a lot of equanimity. 
And so we can definitely see this on the cushion and, and as with this practice that we're doing now. You can see it with uh, body sensations, with painful body sensations, with emotions, with, with whatever. Absolutely, see it on the cushion in a very clear way. Uh, you can also see it off the cushion. You know, this this applies to our life too. Some situations where it's so pressing or, or just can't stop thinking about it, when there's a lot of equanimity, a lot of metta, barely register, uh, barely register the situation or or uh, or, uh, or the importance of it anyway. Okay, so what? About this practice, this uh, someone last year actually didn't have a name for it, and someone uh, last year coined the name kindfulness, uh, which is <laughs> <laughs> quite nice. It might be a little too cute for you. I don't know. But, uh, it's it's a, it's a it's a short shorthand anyway. So what's what what's the what what about it? Couple of things. One thing is it's skillful means. Okay, it's a, a real skillful means of, for ease for ease in the present. And the Buddha was hugely interested in this. Find, for people to find ways of relating to the present moment, find ways of abiding, abiding, and even abiding with what difficult, what is difficult, or what feels difficult, with ways that are easeful, with, with, with a sense of ease. So it's what the Buddha would call a skillful means for ease in the moment. That's really important in our life really important to, to cultivate this practice so that there is, uh, there is that skill in means able to abide skillfully with a sense of ease so there's that but there are, there are you know, enormous insights here enormous insights so the first one at one level is that uh, it's the relationship with things it's the relationship with experience that is important so oftentimes, and sometimes in mindfulness practice, sometimes we can be so much attending to the object, the sensation or the breath or this or that or whatever, so much kind of caught up in the attention to the object that we forget, uh, or we, excuse me, we don't actually realize what the relationship is. So basically, I mean, to put it very crudely, our relationship with experience is either peace or struggle. Some degree of peace, some degree of struggle. It's, it's basically that's it. Uh, in, in Dharma terms, we have a relationship of either peace with something, or or of struggle. Relationship of love, of metta, of compassion with with experience is a relationship of peace. It's a relationship of peace with what's going on. And we begin to see that when the relationship is uh, skillful, is one of ease the suffering goes out of a thing. So it can be what it is, it can be unpleasant, it can be difficult, whatever, but the suffering has gone out. So that's, that's hugely significant. I mean, to, to really, really know this, that uh, some experience, some thing, does not inherently have any problem to it. The, the, the problems are empty, we say in Dharma language, so a thing cannot be a problem, cannot be experienced as a problem, unless I am uh, in an unskillful relationship to it. I'm struggling with it. I'm pushing it. At it I'm pushing at it. I'm pulling at it. I'm uh, whatever. And to see that the thing, the experience, the object, etc., 
inner or outer is not the problem, cannot be a problem by itself. It's empty of problem. Problem is empty. There's huge, huge uh, insight there. Second one, and, and actually even even deeper, is w again this this uh, emptiness of how things are. Emptiness of how things are. So uh, even uh, sometimes going back to what I said before, in the practice sometimes there are openings or there's a kind of melting going on. There's a sense of oneness, and it can feel, uh, you know, it can feel relatively uh, uh, nondescript or whatever, but that's, that's rare, but, uh, or can feel completely mystically, cosmically mind-blowing, uh, yeah, anywhere on that scale. There's a sense of oneness. But actually what this insight into emptiness is saying is that even oneness is not how things are. That's a perception. Even if you remember that note that I read out from the work retreat in about a uh, sort of sense of, of uh, dark, uh, dark uh, infinite space of love that was kind of holding everything and accommodating everything uh, that she opened up to. Even that sense, beautiful uh, cosmic sense, infinite eternal love, that's, uh, whatever you want to say, woven into the fabric of the universe, um, that arises when the conditions are there. When the conditions are not there, it won't be there. Same with the oneness. Emptiness of how things are. They're not separate, they're not one, they're not however. But I feel it's really, really important to say to say here, sometimes, uh, often I think what, what we hear in teachings is, don't get attached to a sense of oneness. Don't get attached to that uh, sense of vast love holding everything, if, if that opens up, uh, because that's just a perception, it just arises from conditions. And then we say, okay, I'll let go of that, whatever. Uh, don't be in a hurry, if, if this is part of the experience, really not to be in a hurry to let go of that kind of thing. Uh, the power of those kind of perceptions to transform the heart and transform the mind over time is enormous, absolutely enormous. And if we hurry through and just say, oh, just a perception, it's just condition, just a fabrication, and where do we go? We actually just go straight back to the default perception, which is, I'm sitting here giving a talk and you're uh, trying to stay awake or <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is. Um, it, that's, that's the default. Human consciousness is programmed incredibly strongly to go to that default mode. What we begin to see in practice is that default way of seeing is not the reality. If we throw out the, the, what I would call the deeper senses of oneness, of uh, infinite love, whatever you want to call it, if we throw that out too quickly, we just go back to the default. And, and uh, we're just, in a way, we're not challenging that default mode enough. So there's a line, I don't know, it's curious, I'm not sure how many people actually even notice this, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe people do, but this is the Metta Sutta, and uh, towards the end, uh, it basically is a description of how Metta leads to complete awakening. And so in the very last paragraph, by not holding to fixed views, etc., etc., reaches enlightenment. Laughter <laughs> 
But that line, <laughs> by not holding to fixed views, not holding to the fixed view of separation, the default everyday view, our normal view, which six and a half billion people agree to, not holding to that view, not also holding to the view of oneness, not holding to the view of uh, infinite space of love, and there, are, and there are other views too. This is the power of meta practice that one goes in and out if, at a very deep level. If, if one really, you know, gives months, and months, and months to this practice, one will go in and out of various states of consciousness, and then one just says, "Well, which one is real? Which one is real?" By not holding to fixed views, the liberation comes through understanding something about how perceptions, views, ways of seeing are are fabricated. So truth, in a way, all we can say is that uh, the truth of things is that they're empty. Uh, to say uh, they exist is a little, you know, when, when we begin practicing this way, it's actually a little bit problematic. To say they don't exist at all is also uh, problematic. So the truth of emptiness is actually something, uh, it's called the middle way, the middle way, meaning it's not existence and it's not non-existence, and not is it some kind of compromise, well they sort of, you know, <laughs> half the time they do whatever. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's something that's a, a different kind of level, neither existence nor non-existence. So to begin, uh, to begin, and that's what we're doing, we're just beginning this, because this is extremely uh, deep and it's really a lifetime's, uh, it's a lifetime's journey, this, 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 uh, this, questioning is looking, to, to begin to see into the relationship and the influence of the relationship is to begin to see into emptiness. And to begin to see into emptiness is to begin to see into freedom. And so this is, this is what we're beginning. And, uh, you know, we can see it in our practice, uh, and we can see it on all kinds of levels, so we can also see it outside our practice. So, uh, or, or one might come to a situation like this, and uh, here we are coming to think three weeks at Guy House, right, I'm really going to get my samadhi together, and I'm going to really quieten the mind or whatever, and then one comes and uh, someone's fidgeting ne next to you or whatever, or coughing or whatever it is, and you think, how am I supposed to... <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, I'm, I've arrived at the meditation centre with this view, again, I said in another talk, of what I want, what I want. And then that begins to colour everything. We view the situation through what I want. So we can play with this, play with this view. What happens if I come into meditation hall and hear all these, uh, you know, irritating people again? <laughs> and, and one says, well, or one particular person, one says, uh, this person is giving me the opportunity to practice patience, to practice kindness, whatever. And one can actually gen see if one can actually genuinely make that shift and see the situation differently. And then it's a gift, their presence and their uh, whatever it is they're doing. And if you're uh, kind of really adventurous and bold, you can come in and sit down and have the view, actually I'm not here for samadhi, I'm, all I'm here to do is to love you. That's all, I'm just here to, to love you. That's very 
advanced practice. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what we notice is, if we change the view, the perception changes. The irritability goes from the situation. How we see the situation, how we see a person, depends on what the mind is bringing to it. Metta, compassion, irritability, what I want, whatever it is, and the mind is always bringing something. Okay, we can look at this from a different angle. To go back uh, to, I was talking about last week or whenever it was, about fear. So, when there's fear in the mind, we tend to think, well, here's a thing, an event, or a situation that I'm fearful of. And there's the thing and the event, and then there's my fear. And we tend to view uh, them as separate. The thing, the event, the situation, and the fear. They're separate. Uh, independent, existing independent. Uh, so we, and we can see that in any way. There's any kind of object and the reaction to it. But we can really see fear is good because it's quite clear, like anger. The fear... Uh, colors our perception of the object. So we begin to see, um, uh, you know, an ogre in the shadows when there's nothing there. When it's nothing. So in a way that's obvious. Fear colors the perception of the object. But we also need reminding of it. I think I also said when I was talking about fear, fear is almost always about future. It's caught up with future thoughts. If I believe in a present, in the present moment, that somehow exists in a real independent way, that has its own inherent existence, independent of what the mind and the heart is bringing to it, if I believe in the present, in, in a what is, in a here and now, that's like that. So if I believe in this present thing having some independent existence, then, uh, to borrow uh, an analogy of the Buddhas, as sure as the wheels of the cart follow the ox that pulls it, there will be fear of the future. If I believe in the present being something real, independent of the mind, there will be fear of the future, because I'm believing in the present. So can we again see present uh, present is empty because it depends on the mind state. It depends on what, what's there with the seeing. Past is empty. When we look back on the past, you can look back at you know, past romances or whatever, and sometimes it's, oh, that was nice. And I was, well, no, she was a sp really special one. <laughs> and other times you look, <laughs> you look back and you think, you know. <laughs> or on our education, you know, if I think back, <laughs> if I think back on my time in school, sometimes it seems, God, that was... I was really pressured and you know, there was a lot of cruelty around, and other times, God, I really had a laugh, you know. Or whatever. It, the, pre the past is coloured by the present mind state. What's the real past? What's the independently existing past? Present is empty. Past is empty. Future is the same, apart from not actually existing. Where is it? Uh, when it becomes present, it will become present and, and it will be empty. If I don't really believe in the present, I can't really believe in the future, and I can't really believe in fear. I can't really believe in the, in the power of that. 
So going back to this Aksaya, Aksaya Mati Sutra, with those who are further advanced on the path, love is based on Dharma. So this is uh, what we're doing. For those who have seen into emptiness, love is not based on anything. So I just, I just want to touch very, very briefly on this. Uh, there's also uh, this appears in other in other texts and traditions. So Rumi, the the, the Sufi mystical poet, also has a poem. I can't remember the poem. Um, uh, love without an object. Love without an object. And something he says it's the best kind of love. And in the uh, Tibetan traditions, in, in the Tibetan Mahayana traditions, and the Vajrayana traditions, uh, talk about compassion without any object of reference. And they talk about this being the very best of all paths without any danger points. No danger of being disconnected and indifferent towards beings or, or anything like that. And so just want very briefly, what does this mean, love without an object? So it's actually gone beyond the sense even of love to all things, to all beings, to all objects. It's actually something on a whole whole different level. And it comes, uh, glimpses of it come, whatever, when there's a very, very deep opening to emptiness. Or can come then. Uh, I actually just wanted to mention that as a possibility. And just to drop in, I think, maybe it's too late now in the retreat, but um, it's sometimes interesting, I think, to notice um, to notice the reaction when uh, when someone is talking or you read or, or whatever, and it seems, well, I'm really not there yet. I don't, you know, I don't know what that what that is. That's way beyond me. Just to notice the reaction, you know, uh, do we close down? Do we turn off? Do we immediately grasp at that and decide? Well, my experience is, I'm not interested in it at all. I want that, or or do we think, oh, I'm a complete failure, or just just to notice what goes on. So the Buddha talks about tanha, craving that leads to suffering, grasping at things in a way that leads to suffering, and chanda, which is more like aspiration or will to do. That's something beautiful. That's some, some, I would like to know that. I would like to understand that. I would like to open to that. And so to have a healthy and noble aspiration, I think going back to the opening talk I was talking about, really important, really, really lovely thing. So, uh, you know, the analogy of there's the mountain and there's the peak of the mountain, that's where we're headed, but the step is right here, right now, and we can see where we're going and pay attention to where we are right now, and it's both, and it's finding a sensitive balance of that. Okay, so what about this business of fading? Sometimes we bathe something in love or hold it in love or there's really just a lot of love there and then the object begins to fade. What, what is going on here? Why, why is that? So can begin, uh, can begin to see maybe or get a sense that love in a way has a lot of, uh, a whole range to it and in its depths love uh, in a way like equanimity is non-grasping it has the quality of non-clinging non-grasping so 
so again, the first level of insight. Uh, when there's no clinging, non-grasping, I think this probably goes back to what John was saying about dependent origination. The clinging, the craving, when that's there, the suffering comes. And we can look at that link in the dependent arising, relax the clinging, relax the craving, relax the grasping, and feel the suffering go out of experience. Really important link in dependent arising. But the understanding of dependent arising is something that goes really, really deep. I mean, it's extremely profound teaching. And there's, again, a whole other level. What we begin to see is that grasping makes the way the world appears. Uh, it makes the way things appear. On an even deeper level, and this is completely counterintuitive, grasping somehow makes the world appear at all. So when we're practicing uh, metta at a very deep level towards objects, there's this non-grasping and there's a fading because objects for their existence need to be grasped at. They need to have some kind of tussle going on with them, either for or against or whatever. So this is completely, counter again, it's completely counterintuitive. We tend to think, well, of course an object exists. It doesn't need me to do anything to it. Uh, but we begin to see the appearance of something depends on the grasping. So there is no thing, there is no real thing that is dependent of, it, that is independent of grasping, of clinging, of what the mind is doing with it. No thing, no problem. If a thing isn't real, it can't be a real problem. So, in the depths of love, there is this non-grasping. And we can also see, you know, grasping kind of clouds our seeing. And this is, this is very clear uh, in ourselves and, and in others. When there's a lot of grasping, we actually don't see clearly. So when there is love and non-grasping, we're actually seeing more clearly. And in the depths, what it means to see more clearly is to see more uh, impermanence, more emptiness. Seeing more emptiness uh, brings with it freedom and love. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an inevitable outcome of seeing emptiness, freedom and love. If you know, think I'm seeing emptiness, but it's actually not leading to a sense of freedom or relief or love or joy or peace or uh, compassion, then there's some there's something a little askew in in the way we're seeing or in our, in our understanding of emptiness. So emptiness is not it sounds you know, a very nihilistic kind of depressing dry word, but actually the the indicator of it is is uh, is love and freedom. So seeing emptiness leads to love and compassion because uh, it's kind of done away with the reality of separation, with the reality of barriers, with the reality of real problems, real faults, uh, with the uh, investment we have in self-inflating or self-depreciation. And eventually, as I say, we're just beginning here, but eventually where the practice goes is we, we begin to see it's all, all empty. It's all empty. And this isn't nihilistic at all. There's something very beautiful in this. So self is empty. Selves are empty. Things are empty. 
inner things, outer things, so-called. Begin to also see minds are empty. And actually suffering is empty too. All of it, all of it, all of it. And somehow, kind of mysteriously or even paradoxically, seeing even that suffering exists, that beings who suffer don't really exist, somehow it leads to, to even more love and compassion. So listening to that, you know, again, it, it may sound completely abstract uh, or, or far removed or whatever, but this is, this is a very real possibility. I'm talking about something very real that's possible for everyone, everyone in the room. And, uh, you know, we tend to think about awakening, or we hear about awakening in stories and people's accounts and this and that. And we tend to think, you know, one day I'll be either sitting in meditation or not sitting in meditation, if that's our view, that it never happens in meditation. Uh, only happens in supermarkets or whatever. Uh, and then there'll be this thunderbolt, and that will be it. And it will just be over in a flash, and uh, bada bim, bada boom. Uh, <laughs> end of el problema, you know. Uh, I don't know that it works that way. I mean, may- maybe, maybe for a few people, I don't know. Uh, really, I think it's something that we go deeper and deeper, slowly, gradually, uh, in, 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 and usually in a non-linear way, into this understanding of emptiness. And little by little, it becomes uh, clearer and clearer, more, f- more, f- more and more full understanding, and deeper and deeper. And it is, it is, it is a very real possibility. So I'm not, you know, as a teacher, I'm not, I'm, I'm just not interested in talking about anything abstract. Just what's the point? So I'm talking about something very real that's genuinely possible, even if it feels right now that that's, I don't, you know, I can't relate. And so, just finally, um, when we talk about love, when we talk about the kind of scope and the range of love, uh, there are, you know, we, we may get, we may already very clearly have a sense in our own practice that there are levels of love, we could say, or, or a continuum of love. And we, as human beings, our consciousness, our heart, moves along, along that continuum. That's the nature of being human. And there's a kind of humility in that that it will move along this continuum. So sometimes uh, we cannot find a sense of love, we cannot find any feeling there. All we can do is the very basic thing of planting the seeds of intention, planting the seeds of loving kindness and compassion. And that intentionality is an act of love. Even if there's no feeling, it feels dry as a bone or even angry or whatever. And sometimes it goes through all the levels, you know, that I've mentioned, whatever, love without an object but again it's not that we're always going to stay in one state or another it's something about being human the amazing range of human consciousness it's really uh, it's staggering the, the, the capacity of the range of human consciousness to move along that whole spectrum and somehow in that, in, in accepting that movement, that's, that's where our humanity is and our humility is. Should we sit for uh, just, just one minute?
quite an involved talk. I think it might might be might be helpful if we uh, had some uh, if there are some questions about anything that's been said um, in, in in regard to uh, love and emptiness, and, uh, or about the new the, the new practice the the practice that was introduced today. So uh, it's not. Uh, it's not that easy <coughs> to understand uh, this this business about emptiness, but um, so any any questions? At all? Um, when when we're using the um, the the practice, but when you're walking, with yeah. your eyes open. Mm-hmm. Should you be including? The trees, the clouds, as phenomena. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can, yeah. Okay. Did everyone hear that? Um, yeah, you can. You can do that. Um, in a way, th- there's a couple of kind of different sort of uh, things that could be going on there. One is giving the tree meta as a tree, as a kind of perhaps sentient being. Don't know. Yeah, you know. Um, and that's one level, and that would come, I would say that would come under meta towards being still. But then there's another level which is, or or another slight emphasis on practice, which we're now moving to a bit more, which is meta to the sight, so to that impression in consciousness, that uh, that image in consciousness as a dharma, as an experience, uh, whatever is there, clouds or whatever. Yeah, you can absolutely do that. It will probably... You can experiment with this, but you may find that seeing the kind of relationships that I've been talking about will probably be clearer uh, when you're doing it towards things like body sensations and emotions and thoughts and that kind of stuff internally. But it, it's interesting what happens when you do it also towards sound and towards sight. So experiment. What I'm, what, what I think I'm interested in is is. Uh, beginning to see this relationship, so don't always go where perhaps the relationship is harder to see. Uh, spend some time where you really begin to see, ah, there's something um, going on here. Does that make sense? Andrew? Um, John was explaining emptiness in his way. He was talking about phenomena being processes, like you know, considering all the conditions that have brought them together to being here and yeah. what will take them apart in the future. Mm-hmm. And um, with the, the whatever the technique that you introduced this morning mm-hmm. during the day, I've been considering things like, yeah, like thoughts happening or, yeah, tree, tree happening. Yeah. Like trying to wrap intellectually my mind around it the process nature of like what it's doing and I found looking at the the relationship or actually knowing there was a relationship mm-hmm. there became clearer yeah good so I was wondering if you could speak about that some more I'm not sure I totally understand so there, there was you were just uh well I'm, I'm trying to describe something I'm not sure how to describe okay. something wondering if you <laughs> 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 um, is what you're saying that uh, John had said things are come together because of conditions and, and, and that well, change like trying to extend meta and 
this, you know, the compassion sensation mm-hmm. and trying to understand what it is that you're giving it to when yeah. it's something that's transient and right. yeah. impermanent. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. So that would... Um, and, and in the course of doing that, you began to notice that the relationship was a factor. Is that what you're exactly. saying? Okay, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that would sort of uh, correlate with, uh, I can't remember which talk I gave, but maybe two, two back when I was talking about bringing insights into the meta practice. So actually seeing something as transient, or seeing it as uh, empty and dependent on conditions, and then giving the meta towards that. Um, but yeah, that's fine. The relationship can become clear that way. Um, there's something about noticing how influential the inner relationship with something is, and and especially uh, because we've been doing the love and compassion, there's already current of that, and using that current to um, to to make an effect on perception, it can be really clear, and then it's sort of undeniably clear that there's a there's a relationship. It's very clear. That's all. But anyway, it happens. It's great. Um, I would I would say try doing it the other way around, so just just that, and seeing if you can notice it that way too. Does that answer? More of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is there more? Or? No, I was just putting it out there. Okay. okay. John. Um, there was a fading during the practice, but there also feels like there's um acceptance. Mm which some way reduces the, the greed, aversion thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So my question is, is this another form of like self-love of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it could be viewed that way because when I say, well, if I'm loving myself, what am I? You know, one, one sort of level of looking at it in terms of anatta is I am just these, um, Experiences and my relationship with them. So if if that becomes one of more acceptance for all of that, then it's self, then it's kind of self-love. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And does it is does the acceptance like really reducing the greed aversion? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The so so like I mean like if if, if I'm having like uh, some craving mm-hmm. and I faded love, then it seems like the the craving subsides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, because th- that's what I'm saying. The in the depths, as as meta really deepens, it has this quality of <coughs> non-clinging, non-craving, non-grasping, and it tends to dissolve craving, dissolve grasping. And uh, there's a way it works on that particular link of dependent origination from uh, feeling to crave to clinging to craving, and then and the suffering goes out. Suffering goes out. Okay. Is that clear? Yeah. I was just wondering if what I'd been experiencing was was like on or sort of I was twisted. No, it's right right on. Okay. Absolutely right on. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming that Don John did talk about that particular link. Yeah, with uh, clinging feeling clinging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, good. Yes. And it was just a question from the instruction this mm-hmm. morning. I understood you to say that we were in some ways to, to use both out of the meta and the karuna yeah, good. and the practice and sort of 
a bit of one or another. And right. I just wanted yeah, to yeah, I should go over that again. Yeah. So what um, what I'm suggesting for this final week is to choose two practices. Either the metta and this new practice, or the compassion and this new practice. Now, what you may want to do is really emphasize the new practice and just do a little bit of either the metta or the compassion. Or you may want to just really emphasize the metta or the compassion and a little bit of the new practice, or half and half. The balance I'm, I don't mind so much about, but uh, I think the only thing really in there is maybe not at this point to mix the, the pure metta and the pure compassion practice. Okay. So there's, that's the only combination that this. Okay. Uh, within this new practice, sometimes it will feel more like metta towards experience objects. Sometimes it will feel more like compassion. Sometimes it will just feel like acceptance. Or that's where it doesn't really matter. It's just words, and just to go with whatever seems helpful with that. Okay. I find it really hard to understand how you can't mix metta and karuna. Because in the giving the courage or the compassion, mm-hmm. you're 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 accepting this, or you're having to do acceptance or meta. There is a degree of yes. meta. There. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And so I get confused when you say don't mix them. Yeah. Um, so <coughs> the the meta practice and the compassion practice, they will at times, uh, you know, at times meta seems so much like compassion, and at times compassion, you know, when there's not a lot of consciousness mm-hmm. of suffering, feels very much like meta. So there is. Um, there is a, a, a spectrum there, and they, and they, they kind of tend to blend. Uh, just to reiterate, then, the, com- the compassion practice, it tunes into suffering. It just hones into the suffering, to that, that resonance of suffering, and it stays there with that, receptive to that, sensitive to that, mm-hmm. and then addresses that with what goes out with the healing. Now, sometimes that will feel more like a meta-practice, and sometimes less so. But um, the point is that it's dire- it's receptive to, sensitive to, and directed to suffering. Um, that's all. Uh, so that they feel similar and that, and that they involve each other. Don't, don't worry about that. Yeah, I think I can see better now the distinction. But I'm also thinking with this new, with the new practice, mm-hmm. you're saying do one or other. Do you mean do? One or other at any one time, or throughout the week. Uh, I'm. I mean, uh, throughout the week, take two practices now. Yeah. One being meta. So kind of choose it now and stay with it. Because <laughs> um. <laughs> that is kind of okay. Which one? <laughs> Let's say choose it by by lunchtime tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and, and you know just with all, with all, with the, all these practices you know we're just beginning here you've got the rest of your life to explore three practices which are huge in range huge in scope and, and profound 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 so just you know uh, it's fine whatever you choose here it's fine okay and, and uh, a couple of things you said in the talk came together for me when we sat in silence. Of this, like mm-hmm. you said about how meta can kind of hold the experiences between within other experiences can happen. Great. And so as I sat, I, I felt my fingers were numb. Mm-hmm. So I went in and I experienced, I met that experience. Mm-hmm. What does this feel like? Mm-hmm. Then I checked out my reaction to it. Am mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. not liking it? Mm-hmm. You know. And then. I brought in a sense of just bringing acceptance to all of, all of that. Mm. 
Does that seem like that kind of sequential way of doing things? Is that quite a valid way of? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Things? Yeah, yeah. Or you could um, eventually. I mean, if if you'd been with us, there would have been been quite a current of the meta by now, and you could kind of skip the middle one. Yeah. Just bothering to even see what your reaction is, just dump the meta on, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you could you could skip that. Uh, also, what will happen with practice? You get very quick at doing it. So it's just whatever's in consciousness, whatever's prominent, mm. there the meta goes, and it's quite quick. And also quite quick to see what the relationship with things is. With practice, it just becomes very evident. Ah, uh, there's some slight aversion here, um, and it's and it's clear. And then the meta comes in, or the compassion, or whatever. But uh, what you're describing is great. It's really great. Yeah. And another thing, um, that's okay. You said about how something to exist that has to be grasped. Mm. Is an example of that is if I'm just my eyes are open, mm -hmm. and I'm seeing lots of light, mm -hmm. but I'm not seeing that purpose occur mm -hmm. until I actually go and grasp it as yeah. an object. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it doesn't actually exist for me until yeah. I see it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when this gets very subtle, attention, uh, to, you know, an analogy is attention is kind of like a... Um, <laughs> whatever that is, a prongs, you know, kind of calipers. Yeah. It does that. And to see... Well, to see you now, I'm kind of <laughs> getting these other, you know, it's, there's a kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, it goes on in a very subtle way. There's a kind of grasping that goes on with attention. But we can also see that we can be paying attention to something. And then when we let go of a lot of grasping, that, that thing that we're paying attention to actually begins to blur and to fade. So it can be easier to see with the eyes closed and, and working on internal things. But eventually it's, it's actually possible with the eyes open and, and the sound and everything. Um, so grasping comes into perception. Grasping is part of perception, put it that way. It's part of perception. No grasping, no perception. No grasping, no perception. And, and, but it's extremely subtle. Mm. And so uh, in attention there is a kind of grasping too. Yeah, that's great. So did, did Liz, did you have a question? Mm. Did you have a question, Liz, or just, okay. Sorry, after you, Rachel. Um, so when you say no grasping, no perception, that you're talking about when things begin to fade. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure what my question is, I just wanted to sort of clarify that. So if a person is um, enlightened, awake, and isn't Grasping what's the yeah, this, this is actually is one of those really odd questions. <laughs> so, did everyone hear the question? No. If a person's enlightened, they're not supposed to be grasping. So how how come they're not bumping into walls all the time? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so it's it's a very at first it can seem like kind of abstract question, but as one goes into this practice and you really see no grasping, no no perception, it it becomes a very real question. I thought you know awakened people are not supposed to grasp. Um, I've asked a number of people this question. <laughs> um, so, a couple of things. Um, one, one of my teachers, Ajahn Tanisaro, he said, I don't know, ask an, ask an arahant. <laughs> Which I thought was a perfectly valid answer. <laughs> Um, in the Tibetan tradition, which I think it sounds weird when you first hear it, but when you really go into practice, you see well, maybe there's really something to this. Only a Buddha, only a fully enlightened person, can actually see the emptiness of something and perceive it at the same time. 
No, no other beings can do that. Either you're, you're <laughs> noticing the emptiness of something, in which case it fades, or you're considering it real, in which case it's there. What I think, my, my take on it as well, is that a person can be awakened to some degree, and there's, such, there's a basically a momentum of sankharas, of karmic momentum, to basically perceive things and, and things existing really. And that momentum for the duration of their life is enough to keep the, the world appearing for them. Uh, and then, theoretically, when they die, it, it all kind of dissolves into whatever it does. But um, again, that can seem like just completely irrelevant and abstract, but as one goes deeper into practice, it becomes like, hmm, what is going on here? You know, how would that work? So, yeah. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Martin. Yeah. That was that was pretty much. My okay. Question. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's an odd question and, and an odd answer, but uh, um, the more I practice, the more I kind of buy it. Actually, the more I buy it. Just to just to um, <coughs> make sure I got this um, understood. Yeah, where, mm-hmm. where there's no there's no time, mm. no dimensions, no 
that's that's awareness without an object. You could. Some people use that that word, so awareness without an object. Some people yeah. prefer to say, well, actually, even there's no awareness there because you can't really call it awareness. Mm. Uh, but, but again, like I said, the language has kind of it's stopped short. It's gone beyond language, so it's difficult. Mm. Choice of the practice for the virtues, metta or compassion, together with this new kind of awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, And if I understand, um, the main difference is that uh, we're sending compassion to dharmas or perceptions, experiences, rather than to beings. Yes. So we can experiment metta for a person we have in mind mm-hmm. and metta for the pain in our knee. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And what I would do is actually be conscious of when you're in one, one practice and when you're in the <coughs> other. So, you know, say we're at this sitting will be metta towards beings oh. and then another sitting metta towards, you know, objects of perception or whatever. At, you know, maybe halfway through a sitting you may feel, mm-hmm. well now I want to switch to practice and that's fine too, but just to be to be clear which one you're doing, what will help so the clarity. So it's awareness, we should practice this alternative sense of the object of the metta or yeah. the compassion. Sense of relation with the object, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Good. Is that clear? Yeah. Good. You. Okay. Maybe the last one, Linda, yeah. Yeah, sort of carrying on a bit from what mm-hmm. Linda was saying. Yeah. But, you know, often if I'm practicing, Say I'm practicing metta mm-hmm. towards being. Yeah. And in that practice, the thought of some suffering in that being mm. just springs into my mind. Mm. It shifts into compassion. It does. And yeah. vice versa. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're practicing compassion mm-hmm. for someone for their suffering, mm-hmm. and then, you know, something joyful appears in it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I remember last year you were emphasizing what's important is to be able to distinguish the two sentiments as different from mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. If you can do that, can't, can't you free it up a little bit? Um, it doesn't make sense to me to be so rigid. It, it blocks it there. Okay. <laughs> uh, sure, yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, if that's what feels helpful, yeah, yeah, just do it. As I say, they will, they will blend and bleed into each other. Um, there, there is something that comes with, with just really developing one and just staying with one and letting that go through its range, but just having it one kind of intention so that, you know, at one level they do blend into each other and they're, they're mixed and it's kind of all the same thing anyway, why bother making a difference? On another level, we do want to be, there's a slight difference in that we want to be sensitive to it. Okay. What, what I said was, um, you know, I will, dis- I will notice the shift yes, sure, sure. while I'm practicing mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, my sentiment actually changes depending yeah. on yeah, yeah. how the object changes for yeah. me. Yeah. yeah, sure. And that's good and that's, that would be part of either a meta practice or a compassion to notice when it's actually more like say a meta practice feels more like a compassion practice or a compassion practice feels more like a meta that would be part of developing each one um, m- I'm just saying maybe 
maybe there's something that comes out with comes out of just kind of staying with one deliberately and seeing it go through those that range mm-hmm. and and noticing it change color as part of the practice but just staying with one kind of strand of intention um, but you know I'm not going to be uh, I'm not going to be anal that so if you, you know whatever okay Um, sometimes there's a, a lot of objects coming up mm. in this new practice. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, um, and it seems kind of difficult to be directing the metta, mm-hmm. or it seems like there's a sense of hurry. Also. Mm. I would just maybe choose what's prominent, and and stay with that. We're not. You're just interested in in again a skillful abiding and a. Uh, and, and seeing this relationship, okay? Sometimes maybe a lot of objects coming up, it might be worth seeing, well, what's the feeling with a lot of objects coming up? You know, is there a feeling of, uh, you know, or, or agitation or, or hurriedness or whatever, and actually giving that, because that will be a bit more steady than giving that the meta, okay? So finding one thing that's a bit more steady and, and doing that, okay? So... <laughs> <laughs>